Jesus Christ. Is he priest? Is he king? Is he prophet? Yes, is the answer. He is all of those, and he is the Messiah, the promised Redeemer, the kinsman Redeemer even, of mankind. We want to talk today about Jesus' authority and his place amongst men. We're going to address that today with our host again, once more, Paul Trask, the renowned. Everybody give a round of applause. <laughs> we are pleased to have Paul Trask from, uh, what's your website again, Paul? It's www.help, the numeral four, and then rlds.com. All right, and we're going to talk about, Paul tells me we're going to talk about the office of king and priest, and uh, I'm just going to let him get right into that, but I'm going to say, Lord, guide us in your word today. Lord, direct us, open our eyes. We pray this in the name of Jesus. As we go into today's discussion um, with our guest host, Paul, uh, we want to remember Matt as he is not with us today and I've been on hiatus. It's so good to be back with you all. Uh, I've had a really good time, some vacations, some uh, other commitments, uh, but it's been a, a, a good go and I'm glad to be back. And here, I'm really glad to be here with Paul Trask. And he, he is, uh, to me, an authority on uh, the RLDS faith uh, coming from a Christian point of view. I, I was first introduced or learned of Paul Trask at uh, a seminary, and he came to speak at an interfaith conference about Mormonism. Uh, especially RLDS. And I want him, I, I want to tell you all, I appreciate him so much and his approach to uh, explaining uh, from a, a biased but unbiased in his, uh, uh, in his delivery uh, presentation of RLDS, their beliefs. He just comes across... Uh, true, he, the man is uh, is learned in uh, the ways and the doctrines of RLDS, but he went on to uh, Christian seminary after he became a Christian, and he, he did the work. So my hat is off to Paul today, and I'm pleased to be in the studio with him, and I'm going to let him kind of introduce things to us, and I want you all to keep Matt in your prayers as his family is increasing almost daily, <laughs> but uh, God bless you, Matt. 
Well, Virtue, thank you so much for that gracious uh, introduction. I very much appreciate it. And it's a pleasure for me to be here again in the studio with you and uh, have some discussion this morning, uh, continuing our examination of the RLDS faith and the fundamental tenets upon which it was built. Uh, last week, uh, we spent uh, nearly the entire hour uh, talking about Joseph Smith's concept of Zion and Latter-day Israel. Uh, and during that time together, I suggested that there were two fundamental building blocks upon which all of Mormonism is built. And that is, number one, Joseph Smith's concept of Zion and Latter-day Israel, and number two, a sense of restored priesthood authority. These two concepts are interrelated, <clears throat> but you can look at them individually as well. Last week, we looked at Zion and Latter-day Israel. This week, we'd like to take a little closer look at uh, Joseph Smith's claim of a restored priesthood authority. These are the foundational building blocks upon which all of Mormonism rests, uh, no matter what flavor, kind, denomination. And there's well over, Virgil, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's well over 100 different separate standalone denominations uh, that claim their origin in Joseph Smith's original church of the 1830s. And so the Mormon church in Utah... Uh, is the largest by far. Uh, the number two group is the RLDS Church uh, here locally, which changed their public name to Community of Christ in 2001. Yeah, that was what I was going to ask you that, Paul, to explain to us the uh, the relevant or the uh, recent name change and, and that. Uh, because uh, to many people uh, on the street, if you're just listening, you don't even have a church. Maybe you weren't raised in church, and maybe this is the first time you're listening to this program. Uh, there's many other uh, religions out there that claim the name of Christ, yet they aren't representing the Christ of the Bible. And, and we really want to talk about that. And I, I want to reiterate what I said before. I, I love how Paul, he does not use ad hominem to describe the other party, the party uh, that we're talking about, and today it is uh, divisions of Mormonism. Uh, he is coming from the uh, uh, from the writings found in Mormonism. So we're just explaining what is taught there, and we're explaining what the Bible says. And, and I'm just ready to listen today, uh, Paul, and as we go into this this study. Well, very good. Um, I can't overemphasize the importance of priesthood, um, and uh, last week and probably a couple of weeks ago as well, I mentioned on the show that this restored sense of priesthood authority um, is the essence of all Mormonism. Why is it the essence? Because uh, Joseph Smith claimed that the early Christian church lost their priesthood authority. They first corrupted their doctrine, and then as a consequence, they lost their priesthood authority. And without priesthood authority, you cannot baptize, you cannot ordain, you cannot do any uh, work of the gospel if you don't have priesthood authority. As a consequence, Christianity was lost to planet Earth, according to Joseph Smith, until he claims the Lord used him in 1830 to restore the church back to Earth again. Central to that restoration of the church back to Earth again was priesthood authority. 
Initially, uh, he claimed that John the Baptist came and restored the Aaronic priesthood, and then a short time later, he claims Peter, James, and John uh, came to restore the Melchizedek priesthood to earth once again, Joseph Smith claiming that this was the priesthood of the early Christian church, now restored to earth again. So it's really important for this priesthood authority to remain on earth. Uh, you cannot, in, in Latter-day Saintism, you cannot really come to God apart from this intermediary priesthood system. Uh, it's not enough for you to just read your Bible and come to faith in Christ. You must be baptized by one having authority to be considered a legitimate Christian. And was he here in this area when all that happened or was it someplace else? Uh, jo Joseph Smith lived in a variety of places, and his church resided uh, in a variety of places as well. Uh, I'm responding to a question here in the studio about where, where exactly did all of this come into being. Of course, the church originated in Palmyra, New York. Uh, it migrated not long after to a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio, by the name of Kirtland. Uh, the church then migrated here to Independence, Missouri for a time, and then uh, up north uh, of the river uh, at Far West. Uh, and then ultimately, uh, it moved it by, by uh, government, government decree in 1838. It migrated um, back east of the Mississippi River to a place now called Nauvoo, which prior to that had been known as Commerce, uh, just short just uh, south of the Iowa border. So uh, in answer to your question, Dave, uh, Joseph Smith had revelations covering this entire span of time from 1830 until 1844, some in Palmyra or, or thereabouts, some in Kirtland, some in Independence. Uh, you know. So it just depends on where he was in the moment uh, regarding the revelations that he would generate. Could I ask a, a question that I noticed you said something early on, and it's kind of leading us back, but thank you for the question, Dave. Um, when Joseph Smith claims, and I don't want to get off on too many rabbit trails as we go into this study, when he claims that these people come back now as John the Baptist would come back to set up the Aaronic priesthood, right? Mm -hmm. When he says they come back, was he implying resurrected or resuscitated being of, do you know, I mean, is that... He, he really never uh, made that kind of a spiritual distinction, uh, rather just that John the Baptist would come, and you're left to your own devices to figure out in what form that was, whether okay. that was a resurrection or whether that was some other kind of an appearance. But, but he did claim that, claim that John the Baptist came. Actually, this happened in May of 1829, while they were still in New York. Um, he claimed that John the Baptist uh, came to him and Oliver Cowdery, which was another of the early founders of the church. And uh, he claims, you know, Joseph Smith is now claiming, uh, that John the Baptist conferred upon them the priesthood of Aaron. Uh, and then, actually, uh, the, the, the second Melchizedek priesthood is an interesting phenomenon because there's, there's actually three different accounts of how that happened. Right. And, and I talk about that in my book, uh, Partway to Utah. Um, in fact, I'm going to turn to that now. Uh, in, in one place, um, Joseph Smith said that the word of the Lord came. In another place, uh, Oliver Cowdery says an angel came. And yet in a third place, in the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, Joseph Smith claims that Peter, James, and John came. So uh, that's interesting because you've got two, two uh, people giving firsthand accounts of what happened, and yet there's three versions. 
uh, of what happened in that in that supposed experience, which I don't believe ever happened at all. I don't believe John the Baptist ever came. I don't believe that there were, at, were actually any experiences at all, but that this was a nice storyline uh, that was used to kind of paper over uh, the beginning of the church. These accounts really didn't come into writing initially. Uh, it was only far later in time that these uh, stories were, I believe, fabricated. Well, I want to just take a moment here to throw in a plug. Paul, could you give us your uh, website again so you can order this material that Paul, it, it's, it, it's open, it's for the public to buy. You can even, I'm looking at it here on my iPad. If you want the information, you can even receive it for free. Uh, if you, uh, But I would encourage you to order uh, some of his books so that you can have it in your hand there. Well, thank you, Virgil. That's right. Uh, the ministry name is Refiners Fire Ministries, and once again, the website address is help, H-E-L-P, the numeral 4, R-L-D-S dot com. Now, uh, my books are on, I've, I've written two books myself, and I've uh, edited and published three others. Uh, they're all available on my website there. You can also get these books on Amazon if you want to purchase them anonymously, which, and that's the reason that we sell on Amazon, so that people can, can order these things anonymously. And when they come to you in the mail, uh, they're not labeled with Refiner's Fire Ministry. They're from Amazon. So you can be exploring the foundation of your church without tipping your hand uh, to other people that might be looking at your mail. Interestingly, while we're on that topic, Virgil, I, I can examine my website traffic, and it's amazing to me uh, how many people are on the web looking at my website at 3 and 4 o'clock in the morning. Uh, 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, I get a lot of web traffic. And um, come to find out by talking to people after the fact... Uh, that they have gotten onto the website, as you're suggesting now, and they've read some of this material online with never having read the book. So the title of the book that I'm teaching out of uh, during our time together today is called Partway to Utah. And if you go to my website under Resources Books, uh, you can find the entire book. Uh, you don't ever really have to buy the book. If you, if you want to do more than just read a little bit, you probably want to get a copy because it's kind of awkward to try to read the whole thing on the Internet. But if you go to the table of contents, and this is true for my book, Partway to Utah. It's true for The Long Way Home. It's true, uh, it's true for uh, Ron Luff's book. It's, it's true for multiple books on my website. If you go to the table of contents right there on the website, click on a chapter, um, the Internet will launch a PDF copy of the entire chapter. You can even print it off if you want to, or you can print excerpts. But it gives you a chance to uh, at least see. There's nothing like having that book in your hands there and reading from the pages. It may be even easier on your eyes uh, doing that, and I encourage you to do that, and it supports this ministry as well. And uh, Just really quickly, and as Paul's been for, what, the fourth week now on Well-Placed Faith? Yeah, this is my fourth time on the oh, show. And we're so glad to have him as a guest host. Uh, Matt and I have uh, been introduced to Paul uh, quite some time back, and since we have done some ministries together, and man, he's just when we were looking for somebody to fill in the gaps, Paul just rose to the surface here, and we're glad to have him and on Well Placed Faith. And you can look us up uh, if you want to link to Paul on WellPlacedFaith.org and on our uh, Well Placed Faith. Uh, Facebook, and you can listen to this uh, on Cherbet. Uh, Dave is so kind to put it on for us in my absence. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, I'm proud to say that, uh, you know, as, as being part of a ministry and ministry machine evangelistic association, that I've partnered with Paul in different uh, events and uh, <clears throat> outreaches. 
we we just uh, uh, we appreciate uh, the work here and and the study in the Word. And would you just really quickly tell us uh, to let everybody know how much is listening? How much is the travel on your the visits to your website increased since you've been here on Well Placed Faith? You know, I first appeared about four weeks ago, and I immediately saw, oh, I would say roughly 25 or 30 percent increase in traffic. So that means that people, you know, have been reached during our time together on the air here on Tuesday mornings, and they've used that as an opportunity to go to the website and explore uh, some material. Not, not only uh, are my visits increasing, uh, but people are spending more and more time there because more and more volume, you know, a greater volume of information is being accessed by people. And, and that's why we've got it there. Uh, the Internet is such a wonderful uh, delivery device. Uh, it's like having a library, and, you know, if you've got an iPad in the palm of your hand or, or on your desk, you can, uh, you know, you can research so many topics now online. And that's true with our information, too. We make it available for people free of charge. Uh, of course, as you suggested, financial help is always appreciated uh, because it does cost money to make all of this available. Now, you know, half of our listeners don't do the internet. Do you have a physical address they can write to to get these books mailed to them or anything? Yeah, a question has come up in the studio, too, about uh, people who uh, may not be internet users or have internet access. And in that case, you could write to me uh, at Refiners Fire Ministries, 605 Southwest U.S. Highway 40, number 196, in Blue Springs, Missouri, 64014. I'll repeat that. It's a 605 Southwest U.S. Highway 40, number 196, Blue Springs, 64014. Really quickly before we move on, I want to just thank the Lord for KCXL and the platform that we have through them. It's just uh, we're just so blessed to work and have this as a way to channel these ministries through and, and work together. And uh, I, I just want to throw that in there. I really thank the Lord for them and. Uh, the, all the work that goes in here behind the scenes. And Paul, just take us right into the study here. Well, uh, the study of priesthood is of tremendous benefit to anyone. Uh, I've heard a, a number of people, of course, when I, I've taught this for quite a number of years, and, and a goodly number of Christians have sat in on my study, and, and they will make the statement to me, why are we not hearing this in our churches? You know, this is such powerful biblical information. You know, why, why is it that we only are hearing about it in your class? And and of course, I can't answer that because I, I teach I teach always from the Bible. Uh, my opinions are really uh, not all that worthwhile. Uh, the only thing that's really truly worthwhile is the Word of God, uh, understood and interpreted correctly and proclaimed widely. And so, um, yeah, it, it's a it's a worthwhile study. When you study priesthood, you not only learn the history of Israel, you learn what the Bible is really saying about all these things, and uh, the end result is that, is that it magnifies uh, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so, really, that's what the entire history of Israel was about. The, the entire history of Israel, which spanned 1,400 years in the Old Testament, was really nothing more than a prophetic device to indicate the, the, the actual real kingdom that Jesus would inaugurate and the real function and purpose of Jesus in salvation and as the king of spiritual Israel, which he is now. 
And so uh, that's why uh, the Apostle Paul says that the whole history of Israel is now a lesson book for the nations. You know, Virgil, if we think about it carefully, Jesus uh, hung on a cross only for a few hours one day in history. Uh, and if you blinked your eyes, you'd miss that. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, God thought about that ahead of time. He didn't want us to miss the, the power and the impact of what Jesus accomplished. And so he provided us a 1,400-year-long picture arrow uh, full of graphic representations of what Jesus would actually accomplish on the cross and that new spiritual world that he would inaugurate by dying and saving us from our sins. Well, Paul, would you agree uh, with me that today, because of that sacrifice of Jesus Christ uh, and him being sacrificed and priest, I would believe, would you agree with me that today there is a priesthood of believers, that the believer is the the priest, uh, so to speak, now? That, that's a good point, Virgil, and, and yeah, absolutely. You know, um, back, uh, and this is an interesting thing to consider, uh, back when God was, uh, you know, bringing the children of Israel out of captivity and actually taking this motley crew of slaves and turning them into a, a nation, turning in, them into a people, his people, and giving them their national identity, he told them, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. Yes. But we don't find that that promise, we find that later on that that priesthood, the legal priesthood of Israel, came choked down within the the tribe of Levi, choked even further down to the specific lineage of Aaron and his boys. And so God's inaugural statement to the nation, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, is not fully materialized until we get into the church age, when we find that in spiritual Israel, virtual, just exactly like you said, in the church age, in the first century forward, after Jesus died on the cross, every believer was held to be a priest. You can find this in the teachings of uh, 1 Peter. You can find this multiple times in the book of Revelation, where where both Peter and um, and the Apostle John are telling us very present tense, not that in some future period, but in the here and now, every believer in Christ is a priest. Actually, Peter says we're a royal priesthood, that we're priests and kings, that we share this with Christ, that Christ extends that priesthood to us as simply by virtue of the fact that we are a believer, not because we are ordained after some order of Aaron, but rather that we are ordained unto eternal life through Christ. And we hold, you know, Jesus extends his priesthood to us as simply as being believers in him. So just with that being acknowledged, Joseph Smith's uh, his uh, claims of recognizing the priesthood being gone. Just that being said, the priesthood was not done away with. It was really uh, energized, if you will, or it was really exposed through Jesus Christ, through the people. It was really illuminated the priesthood, as in individual believers and. Uh, you know, if we're priests, I, I know we're going to be going to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews today, and it calls Jesus the great high priest because there was more than one priest we would have, you know. So it's not that every believer is on par with Jesus. We're not God. Yet we are uh, subject under this great high priest. 
Yeah, that's exactly right, uh, Virgil. And, and with so many other things that Joseph Smith did, he got things exactly up, upside down and backwards. And so it was actually the Aaronic priesthood that was abolished on the cross. Yes. And the priesthood of all believers that we've now been talking about was ushered in. That's actually what happened in the first century. Joseph Smith got it completely backward. Uh, we, we talked about this last week. You know, astute Christians will hear what Joseph Smith did, and, they, and they'll say, hold it right there, Joseph Smith. You're going the wrong way on a one-way street. In other words, the, it was the Aaronic priesthood that was abolished, and it was the priesthood of all believers where the entire nation, the entire nation of spiritual Israel, by virtue of being believers in Christ, was inaugurated and ushered in. And so in the early, if we examine the early church writings, we can see not only in the New Testament, but other historical documents from the early period of the church, every believer was held to be a priest in Christ. This is just, this was a commonly understood feature of the Christian life in the New Testament era. And to put it really simple, the, the role of the priest, one of the main functions was to shed the blood of that animal, that sacrifice. Yes. You know, and so we have in the Aaronic priesthood. So when we have Jesus, whose blood is shed, and and he he did it. No, it wasn't someone else. He he laid it down. And my mind keeps going back to when he's standing in front of Pontius Pilate, and he says, "Are you the king of these these people? Uh, you know, are you the king?" And he said, and "Jesus just refers to him. Well, it's as you say, but here's what I'm going to tell you. You know." Yeah, uh, that was the only response. He's well. You said correctly. Uh, I, you know, I am that one. But they don't recognize it. You know. Yes, that's right. Well, and that's because Latter-day Saints understand uh, the Bible through the lens of Joseph Smith, through the lens of the Book of Mormon, through the lens of, of his Doctrine and Covenants, and through the lens of his other writings. They, they use that lens to filter and to uh, determine how they understand the Bible. If you throw, you know, the Joseph Smith stuff, if you're, willing, if you're willing and able to set his stuff aside for a minute and just let the Bible talk to you out of the truth that's in it, you get a completely different picture. So let's talk about the Aaronic Priesthood for a minute. Uh, we've, we've been talking about how it was abolished. Uh, why, why, why is that? How could that be? We've talked already early this morning about, um, you know, the, the, the law, about this 1,400-year-long picture arrow of the history of genetic Israel pointing to Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus died on the cross, Paul then says that the Old Testament period, this 1,400-year-long picture arrow, then becomes a lesson book for the nations. Well, what was this 1,400-year-long uh, picture arrow? Well, that obviously involved the Mosaic Law. Today, we think of the Mosaic Law as being words on a piece of paper. We think of it being the Torah. We, we think of it being just a legal code. But to properly understand the role of law in the Old Testament, we have to understand it as a closed system. It is a three-legged stool, law, temple, and priesthood. It was all three of these working in combination, complementing each other, that constituted the legal structure of Israel. The law dictated what the legally prescribed priesthood would do at the legally prescribed temple. And like a three-legged stool, if you take any one of these three legs out, the system falls. 
How did this work? Well, when, uh, when Jerusalem was conquered by Babylon in 586 and the uh, Israelites were carried away captive into Babylon, the entire system collapsed. All of the sacrificial observances required by the law could no longer be performed. <clears throat> well, they still had the law. Well, and they still had some priesthood. What were they missing, Virgil? They were missing the... Uh, temple. Yeah, the, their temple, which had been eliminated, uh, so to speak, and it had been contaminated. That's right. You know, the, later, the, later on, the, the period you're... You're speaking of. Um, yeah, th th that's exactly right. And, and so when the Babylonians came in and conquered and, and uh, defeated Jerusalem, one of the first things they did is they destroyed Solomon's temple, uh, which the nation had taken so much pride in and, and at that point in time was actually one of the wonders of the world. Uh, the temple was destroyed. Without the temple, the law collapses. The law simply cannot be complied with absent the temple. So as they spent their 70 years in captivity in Babylon, you find that all of their legally prescribed uh, festivals and uh, sacrifices stopped because the system collapsed. It was a three-legged stool. And so when we look at the law, the Aaronic priesthood, and, and we find that if we go into Exodus, uh, the, the tail end of Exodus 27 and the beginning of Exodus 28, we find God establishing the priesthood of Israel within Aaron and his future male descendants. Yeah, and, and as we're going over this, my mind keeps drifting back. Solomon himself wrote in Ecclesiastes as the preacher, he says, a three-strand cord is not easily broken. And it's not broken, you know, is, is, is really what he's saying. And, and so the priesthood did not break, but the system, men's system, when we fall into a, a system of religion, and we something that we've created, we've added to, we've built up, then yes, it, it's susceptible to collapse. Temples, for instance, are susceptible to being torn down. As Jesus was saying uh, on his, uh, at the Olivet Discourse, you know, hey, this thing is going to come down. Don't, don't trust, this is not what we're talking about. And he ushered in a new reality, and so there was a recharacterization that took place on the cross, which we could talk about at some point. But for the purpose of this discussion, we should, we should firmly fix in our mind the fact that the Aaronic priesthood was not some independent, free-floating, standalone entity. It was an integral part of the Mosaic law, just like the temple was. And so it took all three legs of this stool to keep the system propped up. Law, temple, and priesthood. The Aaronic priesthood, the male descendants of Aaron in his genetic line, uh, were an integral part of the Mosaic law. They were the instrumentality of affecting what the law uh, prescribed. But they had to do it at the temple, as we've been talking about. And so when we get to the cross, and we find that the, uh, you know, when, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, and, and he gave up his spirit, and he finally died, a, a highly significant event happened in the actual Jerusalem temple. Yes. Uh, in the temple, uh, students of the Bible will remember that in the temple there were two adjoining chambers. One was called the holy place, and the next chamber, smaller one, is called the most holy place. And of course, everybody who's watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, you, you know what's inside the most holy place. This is the Ark of the Covenant.
and there was a curtain called a veil which separated these two compartments. Nobody could pass through that veil into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was except for the single high priest and that only one time a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Yes. Now, uh, this veil <clears throat> um, was, a, was not just a thin piece of gauze. This veil, during this, this period of time, was 30 feet high. That's, that's like a three-story building. Yes. And it was not a simple one, one layer of fabric. Uh, writers who comment on the construction of the temple during this time say it was made out of Babylonian tapestry, and it was as thick as a man's hand is wide. So while it may have been a, made of fabric, this was not something to be trifled with. This was a substantial piece of, of the temple. And when Jesus died on the cross, God himself took that veil and tore it from the top down. Something that no mere man could have ever accomplished. No, and it wasn't from, notice it was from the top down, not the bottom up, where it could have been maybe manipulated by a person or whatever. Exactly right. And so this was, you know, the, the, the power of this, Virgil, and I, and I know that you know this, so I'm not, I know that I'm not informing you about this, but uh, the, the power of that act was God saying, as the book of Hebrews confirms, that through the, the broken body, the torn body, and the spilled blood of Jesus Christ, God was saying to mankind, it's okay, you can come in now. And so through the body of Jesus Christ, we, as the, as the book of Hebrews makes so eloquently clear, through the, the torn body and the shed blood of Christ, we now have access directly to God himself. And we don't need, we simply do not need an intermediary priesthood anymore. Thank you, Paul. That, that is one thing I really try to express and try to drive home to our listeners and to those out there who may not be a believer that there is nothing that you can do. Uh, there, there's uh, This veil separated the holy place from the holy of holies, representing the very presence of God. The reason for this elaborate, this veil, which is more of a almost an armor, a cloth armor, if you will, was to separate men from the holiness of God. Holiness cannot blend, it cannot be uh, blended with unholiness, which is us. We're imperfect. Holiness is, is pure, perfect, perfection. And they could not, God was not just shutting himself in, uh, representing just him being in this little closed area. No, he was keeping them out. For this purpose. And when that opened up, just as Paul said, then we were allowed to come in through Jesus Christ, the great high priest. Absolutely right, Virgil. And this is what further allows the Apostle Paul to say later in time is... Um, <laughs> let me collect my thoughts here. I, I, uh, my mind is going in so many different directions. Um, that, that through Christ, you know, we now have access to the Father. Um, through, you know, like I said earlier, you know, the torn body and the spilled blood of Christ, we have direct access to, uh, to God. And the legal system, uh, he, here's what I was going to say earlier, Virgil, is that Paul says that Christ is the end of the law. You know, the Greek word there is telos, which yes. is like terminal. Or it, It's the end of the law so that salvation might come to all who believe. And so on the cross when Jesus gave up 
the ghost when he gave up his life. And as we've been talking about, as that veil in the temple was torn, the mosaic system, that 1,400-year-long picture arrow, has had fully completely served its purpose by pointing to the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so the mosaic system ended right then, right there. Now please keep in mind, the mosaic system included the Aaronic priesthood. The law, the temple, and the priesthood were no longer necessary after Jesus ripped that curtain in two and, and gave up his life on the cross. And as you mentioned earlier in, in Matthew 24 in, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus himself uh, prophesied that you know one day in the not too distant future, he said, some of you standing here are going to see this, um, the, the, the temple's coming down. My paraphrase is they're, you know, they're coming out of the temple. Jesus is coming out of the temple one day with his disciples. And uh, they said, hey, teacher, check out all these cool buildings. Isn't this stuff all neat? And, and his response to them is, don't, don't, do, don't get too worked up over this. It's all coming down. There's not going to be one stone left upon another. They came to him later and said, wow, wait a minute. Tell us, you know, tell us about this. We need to, this is something that we need to know more about. And, so, uh, what, and this is really prophesied in the book of Hebrews, that what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. And so the book of Hebrews makes it clear that this mosaic system was merely a prophetic device. God was merely using this as a, a picture drama to depict what Jesus would usher in. But the thing that he ushered in, Virgil, was in the unseen world. And so God gave us a tinker, God gave us a tinker toy model for 1,400 years in the physical, visible world, together with its complete history, so that we might see and understand what Jesus was going to inaugurate in the spiritual world, which cannot be comprehended by our physical ears, which cannot be comprehended by our physical eyes. We now can look back, and that's why Israel is a history book to the nations, because we can look back at what was accomplished during that 1400 years of temple, law, priesthood, and we, we can see how it's operating now in the spiritual realm because of what Jesus did on the cross. And if you want to know about the guilt of the law, read, read Paul's writing in Romans. You're subject to that. You're already, there's nothing you can do to become uh, against God's wishes other than, you know, you're, you're, you're humanity. You're, you're human. That's why we, you know, you, you have this will about you. And, and yes, he, he knows before time began who you are and how you will be. Uh, I'm not going to delve off into that, but he, he, Paul says the law has, he's the one that has you captured. Uh, and it's death. The, the wages of sin is death. Um, you know, and all of us are guilty. Uh, yet, there is this thing that sets us free, which is Jesus Christ. And, and as we're going on talking about this temple and the priesthood, uh, too many times in the, I, I've noticed this over my lifetime, um, the kingdom of the cults, and I, I, I hate to say this, and I'm, I'm not, please listen to me. Too many of our contemporary churches have made temples out of their buildings. No. Paul said, do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Too many of the cults have come out and said, uh, and, I, and I'm not just pointing at any one. I'm not 
singling out because several and it's not just the cults but it's we've got wrapped up okay well here's where god is in this place that we meet on a on a certain day of the week and this is where we're going to meet him and this is where we're going to have our time with god no if you have jesus christ in in your life if he's become your lord and savior the holy spirit is with you 24 7 god is with you he indwells you in your very being yeah, Go ahead, Paul. You, well, I actually taught about this last week um, at, at an evening study that we have, that that's, that's so very true, what you just said, Virgil. Um, and so this was really part of the recharacterization. And so I use three Gs, that genetics, geography, and granite all came to an end. And, and becoming an Israelite, as Paul makes abundantly clear in the third chapter of Galatians, that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, you know, um, free or slave, male or female, none of that matters anymore. No. He says, he actually says the way that you become a child of Abraham no longer has anything to do with your genetics. It has everything to do with his faith. And so becoming, becoming a child of Abraham in the new covenant era that Jesus ushered in has to do with having the faith of Abraham, not with having his genes or his genetic structure. Well, having said that, I'm going to direct you to, uh, and I know we can't get into it, we don't have enough time to really explain the uh, scenario of Abraham and Melchizedek, because we, we wanted to include the Melchizedek priesthood, which is mentioned early on, uh, that Joseph Smith uh, said was instated. I don't, I don't think it was... Uh, reinstated because it, it's a unique uh, priesthood that there's none like it uh, mentioned but uh, just give us a real brief rundown of the scenario around this and then explain the uh, Melchizedek priesthood yes thank you Virgil that's that's one topic that I love teaching and talking about and I'm going to read you the scripture that was the genesis of of my first book I was reading, this is when we were still in Pasadena, California, not long after I got out of seminary. I was reading in the seventh chapter of Hebrews, starting at verse 11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. Wow, that really hit me powerfully. And the Lord used that to have me reflect back on my RLDS days and back upon the priesthood of Joseph Smith. And so when I sat down to write this book, Partway to Utah, my six chapters on priesthood were the very first chapters I wrote, actually. Um, the subject of Melchizedek is uh, cloaked in mystery. In, in fact, I have a book in front of me that I brought in to show uh, Virgil today. It's called The Melchizedek Tradition, and uh, this is uh, a book written by Fred L. Horton, Jr., uh, written by the Cambridge, uh, or published, rather, by the Cambridge Press, Press. and this was a doctoral-level dissertation, and he, he studied basically the entire uh, traditional um, Melchizedek uh, idea. Well, Virgil, if you're up for it, right now I'm going to read every scripture. I'm going to read every scripture in the Old Testament that has to deal with Mel Melchizedek. Oh, okay. I, I hope we have time. Do you have your seat belt on? I'm, I'm, I'm locked in. All right, here we go. The, the, the first time uh, that Melchizedek appears in the Bible is in Genesis 14. This is the, the, the occasion that you were mentioning about his relationship to Abraham. 
Uh, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham, then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Okay. That's one scripture. We're gonna we're gonna gotta get through the okay, rest. Okay, keep going. We gotta get through the rest of these. Uh, the next one is Psalm 110:4. Pretty good jump there. Uh, Yahweh has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. It's long pause. There it is on the I'm, Old Testament. I'm done. You're done. You're that, done. That is that is every that is every scripture in the Old Testament that mentions Melchizedek. That there are two there are two places. The the only personal appearance of Melchizedek that we have in the Old Testament is where he meets Abra, Abram, as we just talked about. Um, and we find we find here an interesting concept. Melchizedek is not only king of Salem, but he's priest of God Most High. That is the salient feature. That is the distinguishing characteristic of Melchizedek. Later in Psalm 110.4, we read, of course, Psalm 110 is a Messianic psalm. The entire psalm is a depiction of Israel's future Messiah. And regarding that Messiah, these words are expressed, you, the Messiah, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, something that you might find interesting, Virgil, is that Joseph Smith and his Latter-day Saint churches are not the, or- the only organizations, the only organizations to ordain Melchizedek priesthood. Freemasonry does the same thing. In every, uh, you know, as as guys are memorizing and buying their way through 32 degrees of Freemasonry, I think it's either the 17th or the 19th degree, this uh, sentiment out of Psalm 110.4, which is reserved for Jesus Christ alone, hands are laid on the candidate's head, and this expression is said over him, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, which is really a very blasphemous thing to say because this is a messianic psalm. This psalm has only only to do with Jesus Christ. Yeah, we have to look at context here. And these when it's so when it's so discreet and so few uses of certain concepts or names, uh, we have to use context to tell us um, but I, I want to back up just a little bit. You said it's not the only organization or religion or whatever. Uh, to use that, it was Freemasonry, but I, I believe that Freemasonry used that before Joseph Smith. So, uh, in my uh, study, in my estimation of, and again, I'm not just throwing things out here. Uh, I, I've looked into Freemasonry. I, I know about it very well. Um, I believe that Joseph Smith may have borrowed some things from them, just to put it lightly. Well, I think that is too. In fact, there is a prominent uh, Mormon historian by the name of Reed Durham uh, who gave a significant address to a Mormon Historical Association meeting uh, in the 1970s. I have a copy of his conclusion uh, in my book, Partway to Utah, 
and he draws unmistakable parallels between uh, the legend of Hiram Abiff in Freemasonry with the story and the life of Joseph Smith. And so uh, he, he even concludes uh, his study by saying to, to write all of this off as mere coincidence would be ridiculous. Now he doesn't, he doesn't draw concrete conclusions about why the, co the coincidence is, is so, but he clearly uh, acknowledges that there are some clear parallels between well, the legend of Hiram Abiff and Freemasonry and the life and the work of Joseph Smith. Paul, as you well know, and we're subject to in academia or in academics or writing period, if you, this is called plagiarism. Well, it is. Uh, Joseph Smith was really quite adept at borrowing, uh, borrowing, yes, and, I'm saying, and, borrowing, and borrowing, and, and blending concepts. He actually married. Uh, this is something that a lot of people don't understand. When when uh, the early Mormon Church got to Illinois after they were kicked out of Missouri. Uh, within a few short years, Joseph Smith formally discovered Freemasonry, and he ended up marrying Freemasonry into the bowels of his church. And so in Mormon temples all over the world, you have what are fundamentally secret Masonic rituals being worked out. Uh, he borrowed these, actually lifted them directly from Freemasonry. Joseph Smith claimed that he had found in Freemasonry the same thing that he had discovered in Christianity, a corrupted form of truth. And so he borrowed, he basically claimed to be purifying the Masonic ritual and then marrying it into his church, which he claimed was restored Christianity. And this is something that really became inaugurated in Nauvoo. This is an important point of difference, I might add, Virgil, for our listeners. This is one of the points of departure between our LDS, Community of Christ, uh, the, the local brand of Mormonism, and Utah Mormonism. The RLDS church never embraced uh, the, the secret temple ceremonies. Uh, their uh, buildings, their temples, are all open to the public, uh, whereas the, the Mormon temples are reserved only for uh, temple-worthy Mormons. Yes, and I'm glad you, you elaborate for us some of the differences, because we want to just put out facts, and we want to just represent people for what they uh, how they represent themselves. We want to use their material correctly. Um, we, we find it important to bring that up because even though uh, our LDS people uh, have moved, have never embraced secret temples or their ceremonies, somehow they need to come to grips with the fact that their founding prophet inaugurated all of this work and, and basically married Freemasonry into, their, into the church. And even though they have distanced themselves from the teaching, that they really need to come to grips with the fact that it was their prophet that did this. And just to jump back to Melchizedek, um, <clears throat> this has been a subject that I, it's been fond, a fond subject of, of mine. I've loved to, uh, I wish uh, maybe at some future, go into more in-depth study. I did a little study. But uh, just the uh, Abraham, the story, whereas he, goes and he defeats this army and he frees these uh, captured people, a part of his family even, and um, brings it back. Melchizedek meets him there. Just the name, uh, uh, Hebrew names do mean something. Just the name of Melchizedek, it means king of righteousness. Uh, you know. So and, and if he's doing this and as he receives this, he's becoming the... Uh, He's, be, he's taking on the role of priest for Abraham, yet he's called the king here. And so it's giving him a dual uh, role, which these two don't meet. The twain do not meet according to 
Davidic kingship, and Aaronic priesthood. Bingo, uh, Virgil. You've put your finger directly on the significance of Melchizedek in the Bible. Uh, the fact, and you've landed right on it. Uh, the fact that he was both a king and a priest could never happen in no. Israel. Uh, kingship came through the line of Judah, whereas priesthood came through the line of Levi. So in the Mosaic Law period, you could never have one person that was both a king and a priest. Um, and while I didn't read this earlier about the Old Testament, there is a passage in Zechariah 6 which talks about the Melchizedek principle without referring to him by name. The captives had returned to Jerusalem uh, from Babylon, and they were uh, discouraged about their land having been decimated. They're trying to rebuild life in, in, the, in the Holy Land again. And uh, the Lord told Zechariah to engage in a prophetic act where Joshua, uh, the high priest, um, sat down. Um, and this prophecy was expressed. They, they made a crown out of, out of uh, gold and silver. And here was the prophecy that was said over the high priest. Here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from this place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who we will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. This was a prophetic act. They took that, that crown off his head and they placed it in the temple as a memorial. Here is the fact that this is another reference to the coming Messiah, Jesus, who would be a king and a priest. And this was such a significant act, uh, it was to give them hope that, yeah, there's one coming who's going to be a king and a priest. Uh, so it was a prophetic action. Um, well, in uh, let me just read something here to uh, reinforce right from Scripture. Hebrews chapter 6, just a couple verses here. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise. He guaranteed it with an oath so that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for the refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have the hope as an anchor for our lives, safe and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as forerunner, a forerunner, uh, because he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, verse seven or chapter seven, verse one says, "For this Melchizedek, king, again, Jesus is priest and king here." And we're running close here, but go ahead, Paul. Well, again, Virgil, thank you so much. You're putting your finger right on uh, much of the content of the book of Hebrews. That the author of Hebrews, uh, in a in a marvelously genius way, uses uh, Genesis fourteen and Psalm one hundred ten to craft all kinds of implications. And he says, when, when the Lord, the, the Lord basically gave 110, Psalm 110, 4, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. It says that he swore this and he's not going to change his mind. He, and so the early writing, you know, the author of Hebrews is saying that God gave Psalm 110, 4 so that we might be greatly encouraged by the fact that Jesus was going to come and provide this function to recharacterize Israel. This being said, and the fact that God does not lie debunks the Mormonism Melchizedek priesthood.
Yes, Virgil. Just that little bit. Now, the, the, so what's the bottom line regarding Joseph Smith here? Melchizedek in the Bible only ever has to do with the unique, the unique and the exclusive role of Jesus Christ in the salvation of mankind as being both king and priest. And so for any mere man to appropriate either this title or this function to themselves is blasphemous. With that said, folks, I want you to know today the way to God himself is through his son, Jesus Christ. Ask him. You don't have to jump through hoops or hurdles. You don't have to be of a certain lineage. You just need to ask Jesus Christ to save you from your wretchedness, save you from your sin. We're all born sinners. Just ask him to come into your heart and allow God the Father to minister to you and the Holy Spirit to indwell you without the aid of others, without another intermediary except for Jesus Christ. Accept him today. And that today is well-placed faith. Crucified.